Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the hour, a comic novel about Ethel and Julius Rosenberg? Who'd have thought that was possible? But now Francine Prose has written one. It's called The Vixen, and it's terrific. But first, Bernie Sanders recently spoke with our John Nichols about the importance of doing big things in politics. And now Senate Democrats have agreed on a 3.5 trillion dollar budget proposal that would dramatically expand Medicare, provide for paid family leave, subsidize child care, make community college free, and fund some climate initiatives. Big things. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation. We reached him today in Madison. Hi, John. Hey, John. trillion is big, but it's not the $5 or $6 trillion plan that Bernie had been arguing for. That's exactly right. In fact, uh, Bernie Sanders proposed a $6 trillion uh, budget initiative. And frankly, he wasn't on the radical end of things in talking about that. There are a number of groups that have said we need substantially more. Uh, Engineers who say there needs to be more money in in, uh, infrastructure uh, the Sunrise Movement saying that you need $10 trillion committed to uh, addressing the climate crisis. So uh, what Sanders did when he proposed the $6 trillion was uh, suggest, you know, I think what, what a progressive and pragmatic uh, budget might have been. He's obviously got to deal with uh, a Senate that has people in it, obviously Republicans, that, that pretty much don't want to uh, spend anything except on tax breaks for rich people, and uh, and quite a few Democrats who, while they might not be deficit hawks, they're much more cautious as regards spending. So um, you ended up in a compromise position, $3.5 trillion. That's basically what Joe Biden indicated he was comfortable with. And it is important to understand that while $3.5 trillion is less than I might have spent or you might have spent out of your you know personal savings, but uh, it, is, uh, it is a very substantial investment in the future. And as Sanders says, it's the biggest uh, initiative of this kind. Really, it going, he says, going back to the New Deal, I would at least say uh, to Lyndon Johnson in the Great Society. And this is a bill that can pass without any Republican support because of the reconciliation process if all 50 Democrats vote for it and then... Vice President Kamala Harris breaks the tie. 
What will it take to get all 50 Democrats to support this? Well, that's the interesting thing. And that's what I was talking about, Bernie, or talking about with Bernie Sanders. Um, uh, he is the chair of the budget committee. And the budget committee tends to give guidance to the, to the Democratic caucus on things of this nature. So the key for Sanders was to unite the committee to get you know, kind of a broad buy-in from the other members, many of whom are, are much more conservative than he is. And the indications are that he's done that. Uh, when the $3.5 trillion budget plan was announced, uh, he did so with Chuck Schumer and with Mark Warner, the moderate to conservative Democrat from Virginia. And so what you saw there is that uh, you've got a buy-in from across most of the caucus. Now we know in the Democratic caucus that if one member goes off, you're in trouble. And uh, so there are concerns, obviously, as there always are about Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, uh, perhaps a couple of others. What I can tell you from talking to senators, looking at, at the situation is that at this point, there seems to be quite a bit of buy-in. And one of the reasons for it is that a lot of what is in this proposal, as it currently stands, is uh, stuff that, uh, frankly, a lot of Democrats can sell in their home state, even if it is a Trump voting state. For instance, uh, that Medicare build out is for hearing, vision, and dental. And I think a lot of younger folks are probably unaware that the Medicare program, which is a fantastic and immensely popular program, uh, doesn't cover a lot of basics. And, and frankly, when you are an older American, hearing, vision, and dental uh, can often be a lot of, a lot of what uh, you have to pay for. Or, and uh, I just have a question at this point. Is that true even of older white Trump voters? Yes, amazingly enough, it is. And in fact, as you well, I think, subtly note there, um, uh, there is a dispropor disproportional number of uh, older folks uh, who have been Trump voters in some of these states, especially. And, uh, and so in a state like West Virginia, where there is a, a good deal of uh, elderly folks, good number of elderly folks who are not in particularly prosperous situations, in a state like Arizona, where they have a tremendous number of retirees who have come down and settled, especially in Southern Arizona, um, you've, you've got selling points for a Kirsten Cinema or a Joe Manchin. And that is certainly also true out in Montana for John Tester and for some of these other senators. So uh, at the risk of going through state by state and explaining why this is pretty useful for a lot of people, um, it has a, uh, an appeal, a unique appeal. And then beyond that, there's also a couple other elements in it that I'd just quickly note. Uh, the Providing a guarantee of family and medical leave is immensely popular. And that is obviously very, very popular with a lot of young moms and dads. Um, and, and so that counts for a lot. And then the uh, funding for childcare, which for young parents is a huge issue. Uh, so this is something that, that if they get it passed and they start to move it, um, it's, it's a selling point, quite frankly. It's A, what's needed societally. There's no question that we need to build out Medicare. There's no question that we need to provide tremendous amount of additional resources to support young families. Um, but it's also politically really attractive. So can they keep the 50 together? No guarantees. This is a crazy Senate, difficult. 
but it's probably easier than on most of the initiatives that they've dealt with. And let's talk about some of those other initiatives, in particular, the other big thing that we desperately need from this Senate, which is that legislation to protect voting rights. As you and I have said many times, Republicans in all the states they control are making it much harder to vote. Biden gave a fiery speech in support of protecting voting rights. Uh, But as you and I have said here many times, that requires eliminating the filibuster, at least for voting rights legislation. And Biden does not seem to be willing to spend his political capital on that. And Joe Manchin has been unyielding in his insistence on maintaining the filibuster, at least up to this point. Seems like Biden is devoting all his political capital to passing this big budget. You can understand why that's a lot easier, as you have said, to pass than doesn't require changing the Senate rules. So the big question is, is there any hope for a voting rights bill in the Senate or is it time for the Democrats to go to work on uh, on plan B? Well, plan A, B and C is the same. They need to do something to defend democracy. Uh, you know, if they've got a plan B, I, it might be moving from the For the People Act uh, which is a, a kind of broad spectrum response to a lot of the small D democracy problems we have, not just as regards voting rights, but a lot of other issues, to the more focused uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. But at the end of the day, they need to pass uh, legislation that addresses these Republican assaults. Now, there are three ways that you can do that. One way is to do a carve out specifically for democracy issues, to say, we're keeping the filibuster. You know, we're still going to have to jump through all these hoops. But on the baseline of democracy, we're going to say that this has to this rises above. And so as such, we do a carve out complicated. There's going to be a lot of questions of why you wouldn't do carve outs on a whole host of other things like reforms of policing, labor law protection, et cetera. But, you know, there's that possibility. Second possibility is the end of the filibuster, i.e. to simply you know do away with it much harder because, of course, Manchin, Cinema, some others are resistant to that. There's actually quite a bit of resistance in the Democratic caucus to it. So it's it's a challenging thing to get rid of. The carve-out is probably easier. The third route is an interesting one, and that is to put some voting rights protection, some initiatives, into the budget bill and to say that the federal government pays money, uh, it sends out money to help with a lot of election stuff. And uh, so this can somehow be defined as part of a budget. Uh, and in, in the budget context, and let's put something in there, some requirements, some standards. Uh, that could, it's got challenges all over the place. It could make the pulling the whole coalition together shakier. Uh, you could run into the parliamentarian and have some problems there. But um, if indeed you can get your 50 Democrats together to do the budget, um, obviously there's going to be pressure to add some democracy protections in there because that's something big that's going to move. Bottom line is, that, and it's why I go through these different options, is that that we should be looking at all of them and we should be taking them very, very seriously. I mean, I can't, I have to tell you, I've written a lot about this and I have heard people who get, you know, they, they will get very, very excited and they'll tell you, oh, it's just, there's everything's falling apart. It's the end of democracy as we know it. And, and you know, I can have skepticism about that sometimes. Right. You know, you'll say, oh, well, there are ways to build around this. There are ways to invest in voter mobilization, stuff like this. I'm going to tell you what's coming out of Texas right now. Um, there's there's not a way around this. This is the this is hardcore voter suppression. I think Georgia's 
you see some in some other states as well. And most importantly, it also proposes literally the ability to overturn elections. And yeah. that is that's the scary stuff. So I don't think that that Biden and the Democrats can be casual about this. I think they have to take it seriously. Yeah, the new initiatives, which have never come up before in any of the decades of Republican efforts to reduce voting by Democrats, are giving the legislatures or in some cases the courts the power to change the county commissioners who are in charge, not just of running the elections, but of reporting the results of elections and giving state legislatures the power to overturn elections uh, where they, let us put it bluntly, don't like the results. That has never come up before. It's true that Democrats have been able in the past, in the recent past, to beat the Republicans uh, even though uh, lots of laws had been passed in 2020 to make it harder to vote. But let's just remember, despite all those efforts, we had the highest turnout by far in the 2020 election and the biggest margin of Democratic victory. Just to remind us, in 2000, Al Gore got half a million more votes than George W. Bush. In 2016, Hillary Clinton got three million more votes than Donald Trump. In 2020, Joe Biden got seven million more votes than Donald Trump. The trend is really pretty undeniable, and the Republicans can see it too, and that's why they're so desperate to make it harder to vote. And I want to emphasize, I, I wasn't quite aware of this, but I found a piece in the Washington Post. There's a, another parallel development, which is that more than half the states have been making it easier to vote since the 2020 election. There, what happened in 2020 was a lot of mail voting practices were introduced because of the pandemic. Uh, and many states are making those changes permanent, especially voting by mail, which in the past has not been a big deal in American elections, making it easier, making it earlier, protecting mail ballots from being improperly rejected, uh, making it easier to register by mail, to drop off your mail ballot. Uh, before 2020, only five states automatically sent mail ballots to all voters. In November 2020, there were nine that did that. Now roughly three dozen states offer no-excuse absentee voting. And so far, two dozen states have taken steps to improve mail voting, agreeing to pay for return postage, expanding the use of drop boxes. Uh, and this has happened even in a couple of Republican states. Indiana and Kentucky have expanded the availability of mail drop-off locations. It's striking. The Washington Post concluded that the laws making it easier to vote will benefit 63 million eligible voters in 28 states, or about a quarter of the voting population. The states which have made it harder are 18 states, which have 36 million eligible voters, 15% of the voting population. What should we conclude from all this? Sure. Well, there's a lot we should conclude. And um, first off, we know how to make it easy to vote. We, we actually know how to do it right. And yeah. that's important to understand because I think a lot of times there are folks who try to make, uh, you know, democracy a dark science, a complicated thing where, you know, maybe this will work, maybe it won't, we'll see if it blows up. It's not that. It's very easy to make it very easy for the great majority of people to vote. Even the states that are making it easier to vote, however, aren't doing nearly as much as other countries do. I mean, if you look at what they do in Germany or Scandinavia, where they literally get 
70, 80, even in Belgium, 90% turnout. I mean, there's a lot you can do more than what we do. But there are steps in the right direction. We should be happy about that. The problem, John, is that because of the system that we have in the handful of states where they make it a lot harder to vote, a lot of those states have a lot of congressional districts and they have a uh, obviously electoral votes for president, things of that nature, where they, they can have disproportional influence even though there aren't as many people in those states, right? So very small states can, uh, they still get their three electoral votes. Uh, they still get at least two senators and a member of the house and that's quite influential. The next area where, uh, you know, I think that we have to be conscious is in some very big states like Texas. I mean, these are the real battlegrounds. And we have to know that in many of the states where they're making it easier to vote, they are also doing nonpartisan redistricting. They're very responsible in how they draw the districts. Well, what that means is that Republicans still get a decent amount of representation out of those states, right? They're fairly represented. They, They may not win those places, but they're fairly represented. On the other hand, in a state like Texas, where they are just going all in to make it incredibly harder to vote and to gerrymander as, as much as they possibly can, in a state like Georgia, where they're doing the same thing, in a state like Florida, where you are likely to see much the same thing, um, the balance tips hard uh, against democracy. And so, what we have to understand is we can't. I guess we can't make ourselves be uh, happy or or optimistic. Uh, just based on the fact that they're telling you, yeah, a lot of states are doing the right thing. Our system doesn't work that way. You can have a lot of states doing the right thing, but if you've got a handful doing the wrong thing, it can warp the whole process. And to give you a way to think about this, um, you know, most states, you know, uh, banned segregation at, at a certain point, but you had a group of Southern states that had segregation and incredible Jim Crow barriers to voting rights into the 1960s. Well, those states were producing a huge portion of the chairs of committees in the U.S. House and U.S. Senate. Yeah. They stalled progress all over the place and had a profound impact on the trajectory of the country. So uh, we can't, as supporters of democracy, as you know, and, and I use the small letters on both of these radical Democrats, i.e. people who are passionate about making this democratic process work, we cannot you know, write off and say, well, those 10 states are going to be they're not going to do a good job because a that's unfair to the great mass of people in those states who want to vote and who want to participate in the process, the rising coalitions in places like Texas and Georgia, but it's also unfair to the rest of the country because it allows a handful of states to have a disproportional influence on the direction of the governance of the country. And there's one more conclusion we can draw from this, which is just to remind ourselves that, Voting in the United States is controlled by the states, and so it's the state legislatures and the governors of the states who have tremendous power over what happens in their states. And right now, there are swing states which currently have Democratic governors, all of whom are up for re-election in 2022, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. We must keep those Democratic governors in power. And it would be good to get some Democrats in the control of the legislatures, too. Let me just offer you how dangerous this situation is, because you mentioned those three. Let's also put Minnesota on. Minnesota has a Democratic governor and has had Democratic legislatures, but there's a push and pull there, and it's not as as, uh, secure as people might think. 
uh, in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, you have Republican legislatures with Democratic governors. And so you have the potential of a, a bad November in 2022, where you could see all four of those states, uh, key battleground states in a presidential election, all four uh, shift to Republican control. If that was to happen, um, you could very well see those states uh, implement a whole host of restrictions on voting rights and, and do a lot of voter suppression. And so then, John, when you're reading that very nice, happy Washington Post <laughs> article, uh, suddenly the proportions are shifted Quite very rapidly. Quite a bit in a yeah. different direction. And I'll also tell you a couple other states that we really need to keep an eye on, Ohio and uh, Iowa, which have traditional battleground states that shifted a little bit under Trump or a good deal under Trump toward the Republican column, but no guarantees that those can't be gotten back. And so 2022 ends up as a, a year when you have a tremendous amount of battle in the states and that then takes us back to why we care about these national protections for voting rights, because those battles in the states need to play out on the fairest possible playing field. If they do, I think that, that it's very possible that the budget Joe Biden passes with Bernie Sanders and others will be so attractive that a lot of people are going to want to come and vote for Democratic candidates. And you might have a reversal of the traditional pattern, which is the party in the White House does badly in the midterm elections. But I can promise you, if there isn't more done to protect voting rights and to address voter suppression, the chances of having a good 2022 election for Democrats is dramatically reduced. And you really do look at the possibility both of the loss in the states and, frankly, the genuine prospect because of gerrymandering of the loss of the House of Representatives. John Nichols, he's National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation. Read him at thenation.com. John, always great to have you on the show. Thanks. It's a great pleasure, my friend. A comic novel about Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Who'd have thought it was possible? But now Francine Prose has written one. It's called The Vixen, and it's terrific. During her 50-year career, she's published 30 books, along with reams of essays, reviews, columns on all kinds of topics. Anne Frank, Peggy Guggenheim, Caravaggio, and Bacon, that's what the New York Times says. So it's a pleasure to say, Francine Prose, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure. Well, in The Vixen, who is our protagonist, Simon Putnam, and more important, who is his mother? <laughs> uh, well, Simon is a, um, a guy from Brooklyn, from Coney Island, who's just graduated from Harvard. And uh, as happens with so many people, myself included, he's graduated from college and has no idea what he's supposed to do with the rest of his life. So he's returned home to live with his parents in their apartment. Uh, his mother his mother knew Ethel Rosenberg as a, as a young, as a girl, as did my mother. But I should also add that Simon loves his mother. I mean, his love for his mother and his respect for his parents is one of the things that drives the book. And, and really, it wasn't until I started talking about the book with people that I realized how rare that is in fiction. I mean, people have been saying to me, I just can't think of another novel where someone, a young person, likes to spend time with his parents. <laughs> I went, okay. <laughs> you know? 
all right, I had no idea that was so strange, but that's certainly what happens. In any case, he goes home to their apartment in Coney Island and the novel begins on the night of the Rosenberg execution. And they're watching, he and his mother and father uh, are watching television and the reports of the execution from the execution are being, are interspersed with uh, 50s sitcoms with I Love Lucy and the Ricky and David, the Ozzie and Harriet show. And um, and sort of that's, you know, with, with the sort of bogus 50s sitcom families being interspersed with Simon's real family. And then of course, with the Rosenberg family being horribly disrupted at that moment. So so these three, at least three families are all there are all kind of uh, intersecting at that moment. Did you say that your mother was a f- childhood friend of Ethel Rosenberg, just like Simon? Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I thought this by now. This was widely known. Yeah. She they went to uh, Seward Park High School together. They all grew up on the Lower East Side. And and by, my mother, all through her mercifully long life, had three friends who were her childhood friends. And they all knew Ethel. They all, and I asked them about it, and they were sort of, um, you know, her her execution was a tragedy to them, as it was to to most people who were alive at that time. But but I think they were also slightly competitive with Ethel as as young people. I mean, she sang <laughs> she sang the Star Spangled Banner for the high school auditorium, the high school auditorium. So so, and they were very ambitious, my mother and her friends, and in fact all these girls, I mean, they were first, first generation American girls. Their families had immigrated from Eastern Europe, most of them. And, um, and they really had, were strivers. So, so the idea, first of all, that someone would be talented was more talented than they were, was <laughs> anathema. And then, and then also the fact that, that Ethel's politics, that she was a communist and they were I think so, so intent on making the American dream their dream and on getting ahead in America that I, I, I think it, I don't think it made a lot of sense to them. Although they, you know, it wasn't as if they didn't have a social conscience, they did. But, but the idea that, that you wouldn't, or the, or the, let's say that your respect for American democracy was limited in some ways was, was quite hard for them to understand. So in your novel, Simon gets a job at a publishing firm editing the slush pile, the unsolicited manuscripts, and then he is given his first novel to edit. And uh, what is its title? The Vixen, the Patriot, and the Fanatic. You know, I sort of like the earlier title for the novel, A Simple Box of Jello," <laughs> but But that takes some explaining. Yeah, well, well, of course, you know, the main piece of prosecutorial evidence in the Rosenberg case, or one of the main pieces, was uh, this jello box, which was cut into a kind of uh, jigsaw pattern. And and supposedly the way the two Russian spies recognized each other was that these two halves of the jello box fit together like puzzle pieces. I mean, this was so patently absurd from the beginning, <laughs> the idea that this would happen. I mean, again... In the since the novels come out, I've thought about the Cold War and way, and in some ways, I was in the middle of it when I was writing. I mean, it was sort of circling around me, and, and the same. But I thought about it, and and it's it's only recently occurred to me 
how much theater was involved. I mean, this, the gel, you know, the so-called jello box or the made up jello box or whatever was just a piece of theater as was uh, many of the real details of these espionage cases because ultimately nothing happened. We didn't go to war with Russia. We were not, there was no nuclear annihilation. If they got the A-bomb, they already had the A-bomb. So, uh, so again, it was, you know, it was, it was just a kind of shadow play and a distraction. I mean, meanwhile, you know, it's, I mean, I guess it's a bit of a spoiler, but part of the novel becomes about the CIA and and what the CIA was doing during all no this. No spoilers. Time. No spoilers, please. No spoilers. Okay. <laughs> well, just off the subject of the novel, one of the things that seems clear to me is that it, this Cold War was partly a distraction from the things that were actually going on, from the, the various nefarious things that our government was doing all over the world and the Russians were doing. I mean, the Russians were killing mass numbers of their own people. And we were making sure that mass numbers of other people got killed in other countries in which we were interfering. So the novel in your novel, that's The Vixen, The Patriot and The Fanatic, is about a commie spy who's a sexpot and a nympho and who has really big breasts. Is that a fair description? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Don't you love the fact that nympho is no longer <laughs> no longer a current word in the English language? Sex bot, I'm not so sure. But yeah, she's she's this, I mean, the whole book is this kind of lurid, uh, bodice-ripping thriller, that, which Simon is assigned to edit. But, it, but again, it's not so different from a number of books that were popular in the 50s. I mean, these historical, big historical romances that I read, I read tons of them because uh, because I didn't know they weren't great books. I just didn't know. No one had bothered to tell me that they weren't uh, so-called quote-unquote literature. Uh, you have what I think is the first sex scene in literature set at Coney Island on a ride called the Terror Tomb. The moans and blood-curdling screams come not from our two protagonists, but from the corpses and the ghosts that pop up out of the dark. Thank you for that. <laughs> Anytime. Well, you know, I, I mean, I've written about this as, as an essay, nonfiction. That was one of the traumas of my childhood. I mean, not sex in the, in the dark ride, but the fact that I, my brother and I were taken on the dark ride when I was about, I don't know, seven or something. And, and, and just incidentally, those rides apparently lasted 30 minutes. So there was enough time to have sex on the dark ride, if that's what you're going to do. And, and when I came home from Coney Island, I, I didn't sleep for a week. And finally, I told my mother what had happened. And, and it just so happens that there's a very beautiful Dan Arbus photo of the interior of that very same dark ride of the tracks and, and the monsters, which in her photo, you realize how, how goofy and primitive they are. But when you're a kid, nothing could be more, you know, the sound of the screams, the clanking chains. So I now have a print of that photograph on my wall so I can, uh, <laughs> I can revisit the terror anytime I want to. And I looked at it when I was writing the novel. I looked at it many times just for a sense of what it might have been like. So Simon's uh, employer, the people publishing uh, this terrible book, is a respectable firm, Landry, Landry and Bartlett, publishers of literary fiction, biographies and poetry. Uh, is this based on a real company? Well, I've been asked several times, actually, if it's based on Farrar Strauss, which it isn't. It actually is not based on Farrar Strauss, although they were my publisher briefly. 
Um, it, it has something in common. My first publisher was Athenaeum. My first novel came out in 1973, 73, I think, at Athenaeum, and, um, which no longer exists. But, but the office in the novel is very closely based on the office at Athenaeum. So, so when I needed the architecture of the office in my mind to be able to write it, I saw those kind of rabbit warrens of, of halls. And then at the end, there was the office of Pat Knopf, who was the uh, head of Athenaeum at that time. And I, and I was taken there as a, I was a kid. I was in my twenties, early mid twenties. And um, to his baronial office, which was like the office in the novel. I mean, <laughs> you know, hunting dog pictures on the wall. I mean, very much the British gentleman's club. And, uh, and he said to me, Pat Knopf said to me, you didn't write this whole book all by yourself, did you? Which was, you know, at that point, you could say those things to young women and not lose your job. Oof, oof right, oof. But and what was I going to say? I said, oh, yes, yes, I did. So, uh, but that was the atmosphere. That was certainly the atmosphere of, of publishing in the 70s, which basically was the 50s, was still the 50s. So the Rosenbergs were executed in 1953 for espionage. Simon's mother thinks the Rosenbergs were innocent. What does Simon think? Well, he doesn't, he doesn't know. And in fact, the question of the Rosenbergs' guilt or innocence or what they did and what they didn't do, as I was writing the novel, was, was, seemed to me to be irrelevant to what I was doing and, and, and in some ways irrelevant to Simon. I mean, his connection to the case is through his mother. Mm-hmm. So, he, so his reluctance to work on this uh, hideous novel is partly because he feels that it's a betrayal of Ethel and and Julius, but more than that, because he feels that it's a betrayal of his mother and his parents and and all the ideals that his family have and what his family believes in. So it's it's much more about what his mother thinks than about what he thinks or about what I think. So just for the record, I'm speaking now as a professional historian. We know that uh, Julius was a spy, but he did not give the secret of the A-bomb to the Russians. The the Russians had much more qualified nuclear scientists uh, helping them uh, with that. And Ethel, the evidence is clear, was innocent, was framed by the FBI. Her brother, David Greenglass, testified that Ethel typed the documents. But many years later, he told the New York Times writer Sam Roberts that he didn't remember whether Ethel typed the documents and his testimony was a lie. And Sam Roberts' book had another shocker. He interviewed William P. Rogers, who was deputy attorney general at the time of the execution. Later, uh, he was secretary of state for Nixon. And he had an amazing concession uh, about Ethel. He said, quote, she called our bluff, close quote. Uh, they hadn't really wanted to execute Ethel. They hoped she would persuade Julius to cooperate in naming other people. The Rosenbergs, as we know, didn't cooperate. Um, that's the history. But of course, our man Simon doesn't know about uh, David Greenglass and, and, and doesn't know she called our bluff. What he does know is what Ethel told their lawyer after the death sentence. You will see to it that our names are kept bright and unsullied by lies. He can't stop thinking about that. Yeah, and that really was uh, was part of, was in my mind all the way through the writing of the book. I mean, that was, I mean, the, that idea of some kind of truth or some kind of integrity or some kind of 
loyalty to historical fact or to the victims and or the, certainly the victim in this case, Ethel, uh, is is foremost in Simon's mind and as it was in mine. I mean, and because honestly, writing a comic novel about the Rosenbergs was not an easy thing to persuade myself that I was going to do. Yeah. I mean, it was really once I realized what was happening, it's like, oh my God. So so keeping that line uppermost in my mind gave me a kind of courage because I thought, well, I'm in some ways trying to do what uh, she asked her lawyer to do. Poor lawyer who outlived them by less than a year. The New York Times reports that you had wanted to write a novel about the Rosenbergs for 10 years and that you had 14 false starts on it. Were all 14 funny? They were awful. No, you know what they were, actually? They were, I, it was, I didn't have the first chapter. The prologue, the first, the first chapter where the family's watching uh, TV was essential. It was, a, it, it was a thing that made the rest of the book possible. And I didn't have that. So I kept starting the book with what's now the first real chapter, which is Simon's point of view about his leaving college and so on and so on. And it just felt wooden and it felt wrong and it didn't, it just wasn't working. So those 14 versions, which I started numbering after a while, were, were, were varying attempts to get Simon's voice on the page. And then once I had that prologue, I found that I could do it. So, you know, it's a mystery. I mean, why you can't do something and can't do something and can't do something, then suddenly you can do something really is a mystery. But in this case, it seemed clear to me what turned it, what made it possible. One more thing. You teach in a prison, the Eastern Correctional Facility, through the Bard College Prison Initiative. You are a writing faculty at Bard. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, well, it is a wonderful program. It's an incredible program. And, and in fact, there's a uh, there's a four-hour documentary a, a, um, uh, called College Behind Bars that aired on PBS. That's fantastic that anyone should watch it. And in general, anyone who has a few extra dollars should give it to the Bard Prison Initiative. It's a full, it's a it's a college program for for incarcerated people in, in New York State and a number of different prisons. And and it's really like going to Bard. I mean, they have to the students have to do the same things that Bard students have to do. They have to have it write a, a complicated senior project. There's a freshman, uh, I mean, a first year seminar that they have to participate in. And the two times I've done it this past semester and in the past, uh, I it was part of the BA seminar. So uh, so they were literature classes. I mean, I don't in fact teach writing, although that's part of it, but they're literature classes. So the first time I did it, uh, we did Great Expectations. We did Dickens's Great Expectations, which I chose because there's a convict at the center of the novel. I mean, Magowich, the escape of Magowich is what begins the novel. And then, and then Pip's own moral dilemmas are played out against the background of, the, and, and my students got it. And the students are incredible. The students, uh, are the most motivated and hardworking. And this semester was was especially difficult because uh, of course we couldn't go into the prisons because, mm-hmm. because there was COVID and, and the classes, the school kept being shut down for several weeks at a time because there was COVID raging through the prison. So I was doing the class on speakerphone so I couldn't see my students. They couldn't see me. And um, the acoustics were not great. So they could hear me perfectly well, but I couldn't hear them unless they came right up to the speaker. I know that's that's how I thought it was going to be. And I kept thinking, well, 
this is impossible, anything is better than nothing, whatever I do is better than not doing anything. But in fact, it was transcendent. It was really extraordinary because the students were so great. And also, I just, there was something, I mean, I'm trying to write about it now, but but there was something of the confessional about it because when you can't see the person you're talking to. So I just talked about literature and about these texts that we were reading and, and the students got, the text. I mean, there was a wide range and really got it. And they were, they participated as much as they could given the impossibly difficult circumstances. And it wound up being a great experience for me. And I hope for them, they wrote papers as if it was a normal time. I mean, it was complicated because they couldn't always get access even to the computers because everything was shut down and they were in quarantine, but they managed to write papers. They sent me through a complicated system papers and, um, and I was very glad that I did it. Francine Prose, her irresistible new novel, The Vixen, is about a guy starting out in publishing whose first job is editing a terrible novel where Ethel Rosenberg is a sexpot and a spy. Francine Prose, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. We'll be right back.